forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. At this time, then, let us come before our Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Surely you are the Holy One. Your angels sing, holy, holy, holy. And you reign as the one who is robed in majesty. Strength is your belt. And justice is the foundation of your throne. So, Lord God, may we indeed look to you for all things, and may we know that you are the one to whom vengeance and justice and righteousness belongs. You will, as the ruling king, set all things right, and you now already see and know all that occurs. You know our very hearts. And so, Lord, we pray that we would see your rule. We pray, come quickly, that we would see your rule on this renewed earth. And we pray that you would come and conquer hearts. Indeed, we know that you will not come until you have gathered all of your saints to yourself and conquered all of our proud hearts. You will not lose any who are called you save your chosen ones. And so, O oh Lord, we, and we pray for your, your rule to be known from heart to heart, even as we wait for the complete renewal of all things, when the renewal of the heart will be brought to completion, when also the body will be renewed and you will not only rule from heart to heart, you will rule from sea to sea in all majesty and splendor. No more rebellion allowed against you. Even so, O Lord, we, uh, we uh, thank you now for your work now. We pray for your work uh, here. Uh, we pray for your work in in our spiritual hearts with the hearing of your very word this night. And we pray also, O Lord, for uh, health in body, even as the body is not yet renewed 
including uh, the need of a new heart for Amy's niece, Rachel. We thank you that uh, there is a heart available. We thank you that the surgery is scheduled and very imminent. Uh, This very hour we pray, Lord, that you would uh, be with uh, Rachel, be with her uh, family, uh, give them uh, peace through this uh, time, this very night. We pray that you would be with uh, the surgeons. We pray that you would uh, give them uh, skill as they would work according to the order uh, that you still rule this world by, that they would uh, see uh, the order of how you have put the body together and they would that they would work in this uh, in this major surgery and that uh, all would go smoothly and well we pray O oh lord as we consider the weakness of the body we think of of the weakness which is often uh, seen especially as years advance we think of Shirley Schertzma our oldest member and our uh, shut in and we pray Lord that you would be near to her in this trial now even as you have carried her through so many trials be with her now in the trial of the weakness of the flesh we pray also O Lord for Keith Sorensen for his continued battle with cancer cancer all of the ups and downs we think also of uh, Larry Vandenberg's uh, battle with migraine pain and then O Lord we think of others who struggle with pain the pains that come upon us on this sin cursed earth we pray O Lord uh, that you would teach us how to uh, deal with pain in a Christian way with the reliance upon you with learning to rely upon you more and we pray also O Lord as would be your will that we would see pain removed and decreased and that there would be flourishing in that way even here on this our pilgrim land and especially O Lord we pray for health for this reason that we can serve you here below that we can rejoice in who you are and that we would see that joy spread We pray, O Lord, uh, for sister churches. We pray for your work in them and their work in their communities. We pray for community URC in Shearville, Indiana, for Reverend Klompine and the brothers and sisters there. We pray for Cornerstone URC in Sanborn, Iowa, and the brothers and sisters there. We pray that you would be with them as they uh, launch this uh, their Latino Mission Project, seeking to reach out to the many Spanish speakers in uh, their area. Uh, We pray that you would bless uh, Spanish-speaking Bible studies that are already ongoing and that you would uh, be with uh, these these labors, these, uh, these attempts to work for your kingdom in intentional ways and knowing that Indeed, we all need you from uh, one language to another. As we think of your word going forth in many languages, we pray for your gospel going forth in Milan, Italy, 
and Reverend Mike Brown and his church planting work there. Surely, Lord God, your gospel has shined brightly in that land before, and surely uh, it has been much dimmed by uh, those who would profess your name and yet add man-made doctrines or by those who would drift away from truths slowly over the centuries. Uh, Lord, we pray now that you would uh, work your truths in the people of Italy and, and use the church plant there in Milan, that you would continue to give uh, growth numerically and spiritually, strengthening your people there in hope and faith and love. And Lord, that we pray that you would uh, guide uh, Reverend Brown's son Ian as he applies to colleges in Italy and the United States and uh, struggles with the uh, where to be questions. We pray also, O oh Lord, uh, that you would uh, bless the Brown family uh, with a way to purchase a home in Italy as they continue their labors there. And also the labors of Miami International Seminary. Surely, O oh Lord, as we consider your word going forth in many languages, we are thankful for how you have used Reverend Hageman and others in producing materials for teachers in many different languages. We pray that this work would continue and be focused always upon you and your word of truth, which is the divine word. And so, O oh Lord, now open up that divine word upon us this night. We pray that this would be done by your spirit, and we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, a psalm of preparation from Psalm 24. Let us turn to 24b, and let's then stand to sing together 24b.
Amen. Let us turn to our confessional reading for this evening. Lord's Day 24 on page 225. 225 in the smaller forms in prayers books. especially at 62 and 63 uh, tonight, but we'll uh, read the three question and answers, 62, 63, and 64, beginning with question 62. I'll read the question list together, say the answers. Why can't our good works be our righteousness before God, or at least a part of our righteousness? Because the righteousness which can pass God's judgment must be entirely perfect and must in every way measure up to the divine law. But even our best works in this life are all imperfect and stained with sin. Question 63. How can our good works be said to merit nothing when God promises to reward them in this life and the next. This reward is not merited. It is a gift of grace. But doesn't this teaching make people indifferent and wicked? No, it is impossible for those grafted into Christ by true faith not to produce fruits of gratitude. Is the confession we hold in common. Let us turn to the very word of God, Romans chapter 2. Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, <coughs> page 1196 in the Bibles under the seats. And we'll read chapter 2, verses 17 to 24. And then we will also read chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Romans chapter 2, beginning at verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law, and boast in God, and know his will, and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast 
in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Then turning over a page perhaps to chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. So far, the reading, the grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our Lord endures forever. If you call yourself a Jew, but if you call yourself a Christian, Hypocrisy is a real and a deadly sin. If you call yourself one of God's people, you must look to God's sent Messiah. You must look to Jesus Christ. And if you call yourself one of Christ's people, a Christian, you must not only speak in the name of Christ, you must trust in Jesus Christ The apostle here addresses hypocrisy. He is specifically addressing the Jews who call themselves God's people, who have God's word in a special way. They have the Old Testament. They have the special revelation of God, but they reject the Messiah. And so the apostle in this way addresses Hypocrisy as a whole. Whenever you would boast in God, but yet be trusting in self-righteousness. Because all people, all Gentiles, all Jews, all professing Jews, all professing Christians, we are all sinners apart from Christ. No one in any situation can trust in their own righteousness. We need His righteousness. And that's our theme Uh, this evening. Self-righteousness is never the way to life, and it does not matter uh, what theological truths you may know or not know. And so we'll look at self-righteous in learning, and then how this you go from self-righteous in learning to self-righteous in teaching, and then how the apostle says this is blasphemous. When self-righteousness is blasphemous. Well, brothers and sisters, the Jewish people have many blessings. They have not only general revelation, what we sometimes call general revelation, the reality, the truth that God has revealed himself through his creation, through the wonders of the works of his hands. And that is the emphasis of the second half of Romans chapter 1, is God has revealed himself Generally, God has revealed himself to all men and no man has an excuse before God. And now Romans chapter 2, broadly speaking, narrows down the focus. And we speak now about what we often call special revelation, God's law, God's very word revealed to man. And now the apostle is is not speaking, uh, speaking to the world as a whole in general revelation. Now he is focused upon this that you can have special revelation 
but you can have it without having any blessing, without having any final blessing. It is possible to have the law without being blessed by the law if you, here's a a key word for our text, if you, look at the middle of verse 17, rely on the law. That is key for understanding uh, what follows and the uh, and the shortcoming of what follows in and of itself. Look at the very next phrase at the end of that same verse. And boast in God. Well, isn't it good to boast in God? Yes, it is. That is the only boast we can have. But if you boast in God, if you say, I am God's person, I am one of his covenant community members, while relying on the law, then it is no longer a good boast. Then you're not really boasting in God at all. You're boasting in God in relation to your own reliance upon God's law. You have turned everything upside down if that's the way you boast in God. It's not, we we could say, it's not a true boast. It's not the boast that the Apostle Paul speaks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. It's something like this. I am a Jew. I have the law from God. And I can rely on God. I am not like those Gentiles. And so uh, this reliance upon the law informs what comes after it, including the end of that verse, boasting in God, which otherwise would be a good thing. And and following. Look at verse 18. And know his will. Is it a good thing to know God's will? It can be a good thing. But if you know God's will in the context of I'm relying upon the law, then it is no longer any benefit. Brothers and sisters, let's take the weight of the law of God to picture this and put it into our minds. We don't really use those scales anymore, but I think most of us will know what I'm talking about when I say a scale that weighs on each side. Now picture the weight of the Word of God. The weight of theological truth. What are you doing with that weight? Are you putting it on the scales of your brain and weighing the theological words and truths and saying, we can balance everything out? There is a great beauty to the systematic theology that we have in the Word of God. But brothers and sisters, if that is all we do, then the weight of God's word is not what it should be upon us. Because before we take the weight of theological truths and balance them on the scales of our brain, what is the first thing that the weight of God must, the weight of God's word must do? 
It must be a weight upon our very hearts. It must be the weight of the knowledge of our own sin. That is where we must begin with the weight of God's Word coming upon us. If we just receive it and say, "Ah, let me balance these theological truths in the beautiful systematic theology that we have from Genesis to Revelation, then that is just another form of relying upon the law itself. The weight of God's Word before we think about weighing any scales in our brain, must be a weight upon our hearts. It must be pilgrim's burden carried to the cross and not some tower theologian just just stuck weighing, weighing the truths on the scale of the mind. This is, this, this is what the Apostle Paul is saying. To know God's will, well, that's good, but if you know God's will, all part of the same sentence that the Apostle begins with and rely on the law, then it is not doing you any good. Look at the rest of the verse. And to prove what is excellent. It might be paraphrased something like, and distinguish what is really important. Well, should we be able to do that? Doesn't Christ speak about how the Pharisees have failed to see the weightier matters of the law? We should. We should be able to distinguish what is important. But if you're trying to distinguish what is important and trying to just be really good at weighing those theological scales. It does no good if it is preceded by relying on that law in yourself. And and verse 19 clarifies this. And if you are sure that you yourself, the Apostle Paul is making his point very clear. If you are sure that you yourself then these truths, these catechisms, the word for instructing in verse 18, that's a Greek word from which we have our English word catechism, then all these truths, all these things that you can learn, all that you can be catechized in, if you take all of that and rely on that itself, which is really a form of relying on you yourself and your own knowledge of these things. It does no good. So now, brothers and sisters, we must guard against trusting our own theological learning. And so how can we apply that in a very direct way? Well, let's take a good teaching that we should distinguish. Something that we should emphasize, such as the doctrines of grace. Otherwise called sometimes the five points of Calvinism. 
this theology is true. This theology should drive us to give God all the glory, but this theology itself does us no good. And now let's consider a modern parable. There are two men who speak about the theology of salvation. And one says, I am an Arminian. And the other says, I am a Calvinist. And when these two men are asked, why are you saved? The Arminian says, because Jesus Christ has saved me from my sins. And the Calvinist says, because I have a right understanding of God's election. Which of these two men has answered with the words of faith? Now, we can think about what William Ames, who is one of the theologians at the, at the Synod of Dort, said. He was once asked, well, is Arminianism heresy? In the old sense of the word, in the sense of, if anyone has an Arminian leaning in any way, are they a heretic where it's impossible for them to be saved? That's the old understanding of the word. That's how William Ames would have heard the question. And the answer of William Ames was, no, but it's an error that tends towards heresy. In other words, at least for that member at the Synod of Dort, did not see himself as condemning every single person who ever had an Arminian leaning to be a capital H heretic. But he did see himself, and we know this is how the Synod saw themselves as a whole, as defending essential theological truths. Or we can think of how uh, R.C. Sproul speaks about this distinction, who was a leading voice for defending Reformed theology. And so he was often asked about, well, are Arminians saved? And, and, and you can look it up. He gives the same kind of answer in more than one place. And he would say things uh, like this. I think that Arminianism is an extremely defective and weak theology. It has serious consequences and ramifications for the church in general and for the Christian individual in particular. And that is an exact quote. But now I'm going to begin to paraphrase. And again, you can find this. He speaks of this question in more than one place. And then he talks about how, thankfully, there are Arminians who are inconsistent because that theological system drives a person towards reliance upon self in one way or another. And that is unstable. But thankfully, there are Arminians who are inconsistent. And when they are asked, how are you saved? They say, I am saved by grace because of Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, this is one of the reasons why Calvinist hymnals have always included hymns written by Arminians, including the hymn that we're going to sing tonight. I looked it up. I didn't know who she was. She was a Methodist. That means that her official theology was Arminian. I already knew that the author of the hymn on the other side of the page was an Arminian because his last name was Wesley. Come to find out on that two-page spread, they are both Arminians. 
why do Calvinist hymnals have hymns written about the glory of salvation in Jesus Christ by Arminians? Because thankfully there are inconsistent Arminians who rejoice in Jesus Christ. And when asked the question, how are you saved? They say, because Christ has saved me from my sins. And that is a much, much safer position than someone who would trust in their own theological learning and answer that question either out loud or in their heart by saying, because I have a right understanding of the truths of election. People of God, we must not trust in theological consistency. We must trust in the one whom consistent theological truths drive us to, Jesus Christ. We must trust in Him. And not our own learning, not our own reception of God's special revelation in any way. Self-righteous in teaching. Because when one is self-righteous in their learning, it will bleed into self-righteous teaching. Indeed, we've already blended the first and second point a little bit. Are you sure that you yourself, verse 19, are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, Notice at the end of verse 20, the law is good. It is the embodiment of knowledge and truth. The Apostle Paul is not being sarcastic there. The law really is truth. But remember the problem, it all goes back to how he started. You call yourself a Jew, but you rely on the law. You rely on the truths themselves rather than the true one the law is pointing you to. And so he points out that those who have self-righteousness in their own learning don't just keep that to themselves. got to proclaim my self-righteous learning to others. I must be a self-righteous teacher. The Apostle Paul exposes this self-righteousness with a series of questions. You, then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You're not only self-righteous in your learning, but this is not a hidden sin. You declare it. You, you, you rejoice in it. You, just, you can't wait to speak about how much greater your understanding is than everyone else. But as you are teaching these things, and the Apostle Paul lists three sins in the next three questions. One focused on a theft in general. The other focused on adultery. And then the third focused on the robbery of temples. Now, what is the Apostle's intent in these three questions in verse 21 and 22? Well, there's been much written about them, especially about the robbing from temples. What exactly was going on there? It's not the easiest question. Perhaps there were some Jews who were actually robbing from temples. 
And then other Jews were rejoicing in that, like pagan temples are so bad, they get whatever they deserve kind of attitudes. Sadly, there have been many who have blatantly violated the law of God in the name of self-righteousness. But whatever the apostle is getting at exactly, especially with that last of the series of questions, the main point is clear, especially when we look ahead just a little bit. Look, brothers and sisters, at verses 28 and 29. For no one, verse 28, is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. In other words, brothers and sisters, the Apostle Paul is saying, do you teach these things and focus on all the external and all your so-called self-righteous understanding and living without remembering that the law of God always cuts to the heart. Certainly, Jesus Christ proclaimed this clearly in the Sermon on the Mount, especially in chapter 5, verses 21 and following, but the law has always driven to the heart. What does God require of man? To love justice walk humbly with our God. And so they're trusting their own self-righteousness. They're rejoicing in their own self-righteous teaching and proclamation. And they are forgetting that the law cuts to the heart. That, that whatever, whatever our outward living looks like, we are all guilty before God. We all need the righteousness of Jesus Christ because... How does question and answer 62 detail it? Because the righteousness which can pass God's judgment must be entirely perfect and must in every way, even to the very level of our heart, measure up to the divine law. And so where, as we take chapters 1 to 3 as a more of a whole, where is, where is the Apostle Paul going to get with this Where is he going? He's going to explicitly take us to Jesus Christ. And we already read those verses. We'll read again verse 22. We need chapter 3, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That is the righteousness we need. Not any form of self righteousness or self-theological rightness. We need Jesus Christ to whom to whom the word must drive us. And so let's come to our third point. When self-righteousness is blasphemous. And so the apostle says it, lest there be any doubt, lest they're hearing that list of questions and commandments and still thinking of it in external terms, he says, no, you who boast in the law. So once again, he speaks, you rely on the law, you boast in the law itself, you dishonor God by breaking the law. We are all law breakers. And he further drives home his point, quoting from uh, Isaiah probably from Isaiah chapter 52, but it's a, it's a paraphrase. It's a paraphrase that the Apostle Paul quotes in more direct language. He does not want this point to be missed. 
law is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. This is the this is the striking blow against self-righteousness in the name of religion. When you stand and say, I am a Jew, I am a Christian, I have God's special revelation, I am here, and all unbelievers, all Gentiles are down here. What you have really done, when you rely upon the law itself, when you rely upon you yourself, verse 19, what you have really done is you have become worse than the unbeliever. The unbeliever, Romans chapter 1, is also without excuse. But you, who would stand in self-righteous hypocrisy, you have the law. You speak in the name of God, but yet you dishonor God. And so you who think you are so much better than the Gentiles, you are worse than they. You are blasphemers and blasphemy. That is the law in the Old Testament which always requires death. So, brothers and sisters, remembering that this text is a rebuke of that self-righteous pride that Self-righteous attitude. I am a Jew. I am not a Gentile. Let's step back and let's ask ourselves a question. How do we say the word unbeliever? Do we say the word unbeliever with self-righteous animosity? Or do we say it with prayerful compassion? Any reward we have is by faith. Question and answer 63. It is not merited. It is a gift of grace. It is only Christ's righteousness. If we think of this in terms of the, of the Great Commission, we are not called to self-righteous teaching. We are called to humble discipleship. Bringing everyone to the only Master, Jesus Christ. Glancing back at the language of question and answer 61, only Christ's satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness are my righteousness before God. And I can receive it in no other way than by faith alone. And so, brothers and sisters, the, the law is good. Looking back now at the end of verse 20 one more time, the Apostle Paul is not being sarcastic when he says that the law has the embodiment of knowledge and truth. There really is knowledge and truth. And systematic theology is a good defense about being tossed to and fro by the waves. But the order is essential. We must have the weight of God's law upon our hearts, our own hearts first. And then let's balance the theological scales. We must see sin and salvation first. And then we can speak about service. 
That is the faithful three-part outline of the catechism following the basic outline of the book of Romans which came before it. And so the answer is not do not learn, do not look at the law, do not teach, do not preach. The answer is preach Christ. 2 Corinthians 4 verses 5 and 6. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown, not with the light of you yourself, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Any self-righteousness is deadly poison. Jesus and His face is salvation. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, our Lord, remove